I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Esquivel-Campo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, Wesley's out on assignment. We're joined by CNN legal analyst and author Ariva Martin with her reaction to the news that Tim Tebow is likely returning to the NFL while Colin Kaepernick is still blacklisted. Plus, will the body cam footage of the police shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. ever be released? Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm excited to join you guys. There's so much going on in the world, so I'm glad you're covering these topics that we're going to talk about today. Well, the first one is is not important, um, but I do think it's interesting. Uh, the New York Times did a story recently on people who started showering less during the pandemic. So they started showering less frequently, and they decided that they like that, and they're going to continue on doing that. So they spoke to a couple of people who have started now showering as little as once a week. Although one woman did say that she'll do like touch-ups in the sink, you know, washing areas that that need to be washed. Um, and the article also brings up some history of showering, which I found interesting um, in that, you know, daily showering is kind of a modern thing. People didn't really start doing that until they moved into cities. And then it became associated with like status, like looking like you bathed every day or actually bathing every day. So I'm just wondering, like, have you guys been showering less since the pandemic? And, and do you plan to shower less as we are free now? Honestly, yes. Did, did our hygiene habits change at the beginning of COVID? Absolutely. We were home. We weren't going out the house. We were, you know, lounging in our pajamas. I, I was recording like in, you know, a nice top, but my PJ pants. So maybe we were showering a little less, but we work out a lot in my house. So it's not really an option because, you know, once you're all sweaty and sticky, you have to take a shower. So I don't think we ever got to the point, like some of the folks in the article that said they were only taking one shower a week, which I was like, oh, that's a little scary. Because even though the, the one of the women in the article talked about not going out a lot, you still live with other people. So, you know, you've got to be considerate uh, of other people, you know, in your house. And but you can I, smell I, I, yourself. Like, don't you like, you know, when you need a shower and that kind of like that bothers me. Like if I can smell myself, I'm like, oh, girl, like, let's hit the shower. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I thought it was interesting. They talked about some environmental reasons and things they were doing, you know, try to help the the earth and, you know, help the environment. But at the end of the day, uh, I think we all need to take a shower. Tell you something right quick. Tell you something right quick. I, I love I love Mother Earth. I want the I want the planet to be our natural habitat for a long time to come. But as far as showering less because it's the pandemic and then continuing that habit when the pandemic's over hell no hell no absolutely are you bruh have you been bruh. showering less so it's a no i haven't been showering so less even no. through lockdowns no. you've still been showering no. every day yes yeah look man i i like to be clean period and i get it it's a, it's a newfangled thing and it, it only started at you know a certain point in the last century that people shower every day and we didn't always have indoor plumbing like we didn't always have a lot of things but then once you got those things you started to use those like there wasn't always soap right <laughs> like once we got soap we found out that it was the thing that we probably shouldn't live without like running water in your house once you got it you probably don't want to go back to to not having it so now we got soap now we got running water get your ass in the shower every day if you have the blessing and the privilege to have access to like a loofah and something that you can lather up put it on your body it's a good idea 
Have you guys seen this video? It's been making rounds on social media of a woman um, in the UK who was on like a morning show and she talks about how her family shares bath water that when someone's finished with a bath, they'll like let the family know like a tub's full, I'm done. And then you can go Absolutely and take a not. bath if you so choose. A spouse will come down and say, I've left the bath in, does anyone want it? I mean, that's kind of a normal thing to say. I'm really surprised that it's made everyone so hot under the collar, to be honest. I have three kids and I don't even, you know, bathe my three kids in the same water. I can't even imagine. I, I'm like a germaphobe. That would never work for me. Like if I go to a hotel, I have to take, you know, certain cleaning uh, items so that I can wipe down everything. That's absolutely disgusting. I'm, I'm a... I'm I'm a little bit of a sci-fi buff. So like I'm into like The Walking Dead when the show was still good. And the thing that scares me the most about all of these like dystopian fantasies about what happens when, when society breaks down is I'm like, how the hell y'all gonna watch that? <laughs> That's what scares you the most? Like, what the, yeah, there's, like I'm afraid like, where are all these people washing up? They done film these communes. They live around each other. They, 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 some of them is coupling up and getting together and doing whatever they do. I don't want to do that with you when you ain't had no shower <laughs> in the last 18 months because there ain't no more running water left on earth. I will say my father always told me how when he was growing up, the whole entire family would share the one bath because resources were limited. So hot water was a commodity and they would go in order of age and he was the youngest. So he would take a bath in the same water that everyone else in his family had already bathed in. And he said the water would be like gray by the time he got in. I ain't saying nothing bad about, about Mara's father. Right. I ain't saying nothing <laughs> bad about people who live through hard times. I'm just saying that once you reach the point that you have access to modern conveniences, Let's not, go, let's back. not go back. That's all I'm saying. Um, all right. So let's move on to something that, that is much more serious. This is serious news. Um, this is a new development in um, the shooting death of Andrew Brown Jr. Um, so his family is now speaking out after recently viewing more of the body cam footage of his shooting. A judge recently ruled that the family could view a little bit more, but no more than 20 minutes. The total footage is more than two hours. Um, and the judge has also ruled that they are not going to release that video to the public yet. Uh, so Brown was killed last month. He was shot five times, according to a family autopsy, by sheriff's deputies who were serving a warrant. Um, so Reva, I want to start with you in this case, because the family has been asking to view the full footage. The public has been demanding release. Uh, a lot of the public, there have been protests and demonstrations. There have been lawsuits that have been filed. Um, so there has been the request for this video to be made public, but it has not been granted yet. Why? Why has the video not been made public? And why is the family even limited in how much they're allowed to see? Because of the power of a judge in our judicial system. And that's, I think, the example of what's happening in this case uh, really exemplifies why police reform is so thorny and so complicated. Because it's not like there's one set of rules and everybody has to play by those rules. Every state, every city, every municipality gets to set their own rules. And this is a state, North Carolina, that says that body cam video can't be released or shouldn't be released unless there is an order from a judge. And so then the judge has a great deal of discretion in terms of determining when and how video camera from a police shooting will be released. We saw the exact opposite just recently in Minneapolis, that suburb Brooklyn Center outside of Minneapolis, when there was a shooting 
Uh, and the video camera was released almost immediately. There was a press conference. There was an effort at transparency. Uh, and you can look at from Mike Brown to Eric Gardner uh, to Dante Wright, all of these cases are handled very differently. And it depends on the jurisdiction. It depends on the district attorney. It depends on the police chief. It depends on the mayor of that city because mayors control uh, police chiefs. They, they appoint the police chief. Uh, in this case, we have the judicial body involved. We have a judge that made this ruling. You could only watch 20 minutes of it. The faces had to be blurred out, but yet the names of the officers have been released. So we know their names, but yet we can't, or the family can't see the faces in this video. Very disturbing, a, a throwback to an era when police were allowed, you know, to withhold videotape, not talk to the public, not provide information to the family. Uh, really disappointing. And I, if anything, I think this is another reason why that federal piece of legislation, you know, the George Floyd, uh, uh, you know, reform bill, police reform bill that has been passed by the Congress, but it's held up in the Senate. Another reason why we need more uniform standards for police throughout this country. Is there anything in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that actually addresses this specific issue, though? I know that there are a number of measures in there that deal directly with police accountability in terms of how officers themselves have to conduct themselves and how investigations need to, need to be done. But I don't know if there's anything, correct me if I'm wrong, if there's anything in there that rises to the, to the level that would curtail this state-level jurist's ability to make a determination like the one that, that we're seeing in, in this case. In other words, it might, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act might say something about whether or not the officers had the right to pull their weapons and fire in this case, but it, but it doesn't necessarily say anything about whether or not a judge can force the municipality to release the video either to the family or to the public. Yeah, I haven't read Is that the a bill Are you aware? in entirety. I don't think none of the, the reporting that I've heard about the bill and what I've read about the bill doesn't address this issue specifically, but it does bring some uniformity to policing. You know, but there are 18,000 police departments across this country. So when you think about trying to reform uh, 18,000 police departments, again, that are controlled at the local level, it's a Herculean task. And that's what's so frustrating for activists and advocates and civil rights warriors like myself, because we make some progress, some states, some jurisdictions, you know, super progressive, like that Minneapolis, uh, you know, suburb that I just talked about. And then you have a judge in this case who is, you know, engaging in conduct that for, looks like a cover-up. I mean, let's just be honest about what this looks like. Looks like there's an effort on the part of this judge to, uh, prevent the family and the public from seeing what ultimately is going to be made public. We, we know this video at some point is going to come out. It's just a question of when. Uh, and this, this notion that the judge has that somehow the investigation will be hampered or it will somehow uh, impede the investigation just uh, is not consistent with what we know about these types of investigations. There have been many police investigations, prosecutions uh, that have gone forward with police body cam video being released early on after a shooting, rather than in this case, it may be months uh, before the public has access to the video.
Well, when you hear the family describe what they've seen, because now they've had the opportunity, initially they were able to view a very, very brief portion of the video. Now they've been able to view a little bit more. And every time they view some of the video, they um, have had press conferences and they have shared with the public what they've seen. Um, they have called it an ambush. They have said that the police account of um, Mr. Brown, you know, backing up in a way that he was trying to hit officers, you know, and I believe the, the, the official police account was that he actually did make contact with one of the officers with this car. They say that that was not true, that there at no time did he make contact with any of the officers, that the officers did not appear to be in danger. So they're basically describing two very, very different accounts. So to your point, if this is going to come out eventually, and we will see what they are describing, which they have described as an execution and an ambush, and we know from the autopsy um, that Brown was shot in the back of the head at least once, what is the purpose of delaying? Yeah, there, there really is no purpose other than that's how police have been allowed to handle these matters. And think about before we even had body cam video, typically there'd be a press release that would come out from a police department. Uh, maybe some officers would be placed on administrative leave, but it would be months, if not years. Think back to the Laquan McDonald case uh, in Chicago, that young man, 17-year-old man that was shot by police officers. Thankfully, that officer involved, uh, Van Dyke, was actually convicted uh, for shooting and killing uh, Laquan McDonald, but it took years for that videotape uh, from the body cam to come out. There is no legitimate purpose uh, for police departments to withhold this kind of, of evidence. That was the whole purpose uh, after uh, the shooting death of Mike Brown in Ferguson, the whole push to force police departments to uh, start using body cam videos was to make available to the public to, you know, unveil, to pull the onion layers back, to pull the covers back on the conduct of police officers. So what's the purposes of wearing the video if you're not going to make it available? Uh, I just think the reality is some of these police departments, some of these jurisdictions are stuck in a, a different era, an era with that kind of policing, that kind of, uh, you know, non-responsiveness to the public was accepted. Uh, and that's why we've seen a push across the country for more progressive district attorneys, uh, for mayors who were going to appoint police chiefs who were going to handle these kinds of shootings differently. We've seen some states that have enacted legislation that says any police-involved shooting must be investigated by someone outside of that jurisdiction, not that local district attorney. And we're hearing uh, the family in this case, in Mr. Brown's case, call for the local district attorney uh, to be to be removed, for him to recuse himself. Because you probably have seen this back and forth. One of the lawyers for the family called it an execution, uh, you know, and then we saw the district attorney come out and said, that, you know, the way it was described was patently false. So there's kind of this war of words going back between the district attorney's office and the family's attorneys. And we could clear all of this up show us the videotape. Right, which which is raises the question. If, if you're saying that, no, they're lying, that this is patently false, and the family is saying, no, you're lying, your account is completely false, why not just release the video and clear everything up? I mean, isn't that what body cam is there for? I could think of is that, that there's an argument to be made about the tainting of a potential jury pool in the event that this actually gets charged and brought, and brought to trial. Uh, we have seen police officers be charged with with offenses and be and, and either use the video the fact that it was difficult to find people who haven't been able to who, who had not been exposed to the video actually this was argued in the um in the Derek Chauvin case that his attorneys tried attempted to make the argument for a change of venue because it was so difficult the most cynical way to look at it 
is on the other end of the spectrum. If you are inclined to believe that the district attorney and that the and that the entire criminal justice apparatus in that particular jurisdiction has zero interest in charging a police officer, then it would benefit them to hold on to that video as long as possible because of, because of the video shows something that to an average to a lay person's eye would say that's criminal, then it makes it much more difficult for them to announce that they won't charge anyone uh, with, with this offense. So in, in the, so, so what's, what's happened uh, in Ariva, what I think you've been talking about, talking about is that in a lot of cases that we've seen over the last five years, there's been live video. And the live video that we've been getting hasn't originally come from the police body camera video. It's not. It's never the body camera video that comes out first. It's always some bystander. It's always a person out their window. It's always somebody walking past. It's always somebody who's standing there. And in George Floyd's case, they happen to do it at a busy intersection where everybody could reach out and take their cameras. But we, in the case of Walter Scott, there was a there was a bystander uh, in in South Carolina. It was a bystander who was who was walking by and happened to see this officer chase and then and then throw his taser down and then shoot Walter Scott in 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 the back and that's how we saw charges come about in in, in that instance um but most of the time it's not the officer's body camera footage that gets released it's the public already has access to a video that's come from a private citizen that's gone viral and that and that then leaves the police department with no choice but to release the footage that, that they have, especially if they're trying to further a narrative that is different from what people see on the on the body camera. In this instance, we don't we don't have or at least we don't know of the existence of independent video outside of the body cameras. Yeah. So the I, police are in control. Yeah, and I hear what you're saying, Keith, but in that Brooklyn Center Dante Wright shooting, that was police body cam video that that mayor, that young African-American mayor, uh, made the decision to release to the public. So the police and the district attorneys have the ability and states, you know, have the ability to pass laws that will make that video available. And this argument that somehow it taints the jury pool, you know, states always have to weigh the interest, right? You have to weigh the interests of the public versus uh, individual defendants' rights to uh, a fair trial. Those are always interests that elected officials and leaders have to weigh. But in this era, era where we've seen far too many African-American unarmed men shot and killed by police, the, the public has pretty much spoken. They've said that the interest of the public outweighs of what may be the individual argument that somehow this is going to taint the jury pool or somehow make it impossible. Uh, because quite frankly, the, the case law and, you know, a, a, decisions in court cases are still in favor of the police. Just because Derek Chauvin was convicted, you know, in some ways you can say that's an anomaly. The reality is even when video cam and other viral videos, as you mentioned, uh, have been put out into the public, there's still a bias in our judicial system in favor of police officers. There's still a sense of a difficulty in terms of charging them at the district attorney level. And even jurors, everyday people, still believe that police you know, don't wake up every morning to go to work to shoot somebody. They still have a great deal of reverence for police officers, and they give them the benefit of the doubt, even when they have seen what otherwise may be disturbing video. Uh, so, uh, yes, I, we got a lot of work to do because it, it makes no sense to say we want 
we want to mandate, and some states have, the wearing of body cams and then say we're going to have this fight back and forth about them and not reveal it to the public. That's not serving anyone well. The family that's you know been victimized by the shooting of the defendants themselves and, of course, the public. Everybody loses, I think, in this this that's happening. Right. And so I think to your to your point, right, like you, you use the phrase in the interest of in the interest of the public and the public has, has spoken. And one of the things that I, that I said in my earlier commentary was it depends on your level of cynicism about the criminal justice system and, and, and about policing. Right. So a cynic's view of, a, of all of this is that do it would be do you actually believe that in these cases that that police departments are actually acting in the public in the public's interest. Do you believe that police officers and that police departments, when they bring in body technology like body cameras, are doing it for the protection of the public and doing it in the interest of transparency, or are they doing it to placate, or are they doing it to to they're doing it because they have to? They're being they, forced to. Right. Well, they're they're be, they're being forced to largely, right? But but in terms of the intent of of. The, the intent that they have, right? You can bring in body cameras and you can mandate that every officer ha has to wear one, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have substantive policy behind the, the, to, behind the wearing of the body camera that stipulates that, the, that, the, that when, when the camera has to be on. We've seen a lot of instances where cops are actually wearing body cameras, but they don't turn them on. When, when, when they're involved in a, in, in a shooting or when they're involved in, in, you know, in some, you know, a beating or a fight or, or, you know, or anything. There's a there's a lot of controversy around how often or how much body cameras should be running when when police officers aren't actually engaged because there's a privacy issue involved. Like, should a cop have body camera technology have the body camera enabled at all at all times just when they're walking up and down the street on, on the beat? And what and you know what ramifications does that have for an individual's right to 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 privacy? So there are all of these secondary issues. Body cameras were never were never going to be a panacea. They were never going to be the thing that solved police brutality once and for all. They're a piece of technology, and just like any technology, it can be used for good or it can be used for bad. It can be used to the public interest or it can be used to the public's detriment, depending on what type of policy and depending on the good faith of the person making the policy uh, intends in when they put that, those cameras into use. And all I'm suggesting is that we need to... We need to be conscious of that. We need to be aware of that as we have have contextual conversations around the use of the, this technology instead of believing that, hey, we've got these body cameras. That's that should solve the problem. It's not going to solve the problem, especially if you're if you're talking about a police department that is either knowingly engaged in misconduct or simply is just not acting in in the good faith interest of the public that they're that they're charged with police. Yeah, yeah. I think he, nobody. Nobody would disagree with that. Nobody thinks that body cams are the solution to police brutality or police excessive force. I think everybody does. But no, I actually think they're a very, I, I would disagree with that. I think they're a very important piece of the puzzle because I think, you know, we all know that you behave differently when you know you're being watched, right? Um, you know, the cat's away, the, the mouse will play. So if you know that your boss is watching you, you're going to work a little differently than if the boss is on vacation. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to police accountability. It's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole answer, but it is an important piece because A, you know that if the evidence contradicts what you're saying, there is a very good chance that you're going to be held account for that discrepancy. Um, it's the only thing that victims often have to support 
their claims. You know, there's this word on the street, testifying, that the, you know people have known on the streets forever that police go to court and they lie. They call it testifying, and because they're officers, their word is given weight as though it is the gospel. People have known this for a long time, and so now because of the presence of these body cameras, there is some recourse to be able to say, no, I'm telling the truth, and here is the proof. And well, I think it's it's an important step. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that, Mara. I, and I wasn't disagreeing with Keith that it is uh, an important part as we try to you know, solve this whole issue of police brutality. But I don't think there's evidence to support uh, your statement that there is a direct correlation between changing of conduct and police body cam. Uh, and I think police would beg to differ that there is an attitude, a culture of policing in this country, which is what we saw on display with Derek Chauvin. Uh, in that trial, we saw five police officers who were being videotaped in the most you know, public way possible. People were literally standing there with their phones. It wasn't even like clandestinely happening. It was happening in broad daylight. And those officers still engaged in that conduct. And we see that time and time again, because the notion is that somehow they are above the law and that the culture protects them despite the conduct that they engage in. And so I, I don't think we've had a sufficient shift in the culture of policing such that there's this notion that, yeah, I'm going to be on cameras. I'm going to be on my best behavior here. Yeah, but uh, if anything, you see police still using those arguments that what I did was consistent with police policy. When I knocked him upside the head, that's what we're trained to do. So I, I still think we, we were a long ways uh, from, and, and again, the evidence is, is not there. The empirical evidence is not there that police brutality has somehow been uh, decreased significantly because of the use of body cams. But my argument to that would be, imagine how much worse it would be if they didn't think they were being watched. That well, what we're seeing yeah, I, I may know, be bad. That, that's a little harder to measure, but I'm telling you from having studied this, the empirical data does not support that the body cam, usage of body cam has substantially reduced uh, police excessive force complaints from citizens in you know many cities throughout the country. It continues to be a problem because again, there is this notion that even if it's on camera, I can explain it away. I can explain it away with the training. I can explain it away with the policies. Uh, I can explain it away because you know Joe did that last week and he got away with it. I'm sure you guys saw in the Derek Chauvin trial after the you know the, the guilty verdicts. The feds came in and charged all of those officers and, and Chauvin, not just with George Floyd, they went back to 2017 to an incident where he uh, kneeled on the neck of a 14 year old, not for nine minutes and 29 seconds, but for 17 minutes. And you know, rendered this young man unconscious, hit him upside the head with a flashlight. And all of this is happening in front of the young man's mother uh, in his home. So. Mm. You know, Derek Chauvin had about 19 or 20 complaints, eight or so were involving some pretty substantial, you know, complaints of violence. So even though, and a lot of those on body, on body cam, a lot of those eyewitnesses, but yet he remained in that job, he remained on the streets, and he remained in a position of authority, you know, able to use that badge as we saw him do, uh, you know, as he kneeled on George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Yeah, so, well, I, I will. I will defer to your expertise on this um, because you you have studied it. I have not. I'm I'm just kind of going with, um, with my gut. But no, I absolutely I, defer. You know what? That's so intuitive, right? That, you know, that's what we were all asking with Chauvin. Like, dude, you're being videotaped. <laughs> Cut it out. You know, get your knee. Yes. So, uh, Ariva, I don't know how much of a football fan you you are, uh, but we're about to get into my favorite topic, sports. 
Um, Tim Tebow, if you're not a, not aware, a former NFL quarterback. Uh, this week, it's been it's been reported that Tim Tebow, who hasn't been in the NFL since 2015, has not played an NFL game in the last six years. Um, and even then, he was he was last on a roster in the preseason, didn't didn't take a snap during the regular season. Uh, has been reportedly uh, signed by the Jacksonville Jaguars to come in pre in this preseason, not as a quarterback, but as a tight end. Um, Tim Tebow, if you remember, you know back back this far was always a, a, a controversial player. There was always a lot. He was a Heisman Trophy winner. He was always, there was always a, a lot of controversy around whether or not he had what it took to play the quarterback position in the NFL. Uh, ultimately, teams, he, he played played for a few years. Teams decided that he wasn't worth it. He was cut. There was always a lot of hype around him, always a lot of talk around him. But the numbers on the field just didn't add up. Uh, and then Tim Tebow found a career in the broadcast booth, actually went to play some minor league baseball. And nobody was thinking about Tim Tebow at all until his former coach from the University of Florida, Florida Urban Meyer, took over as the head coach this offseason of the Jacksonville Jaguars. And now Tim Tebow will be on the preseason, at least NFL roster under a one year deal as a tight end, which brings up Mara and Ariva. Uh, a guy by the name of Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, I've, I've heard who, of him. <laughs> you've, you, you've heard of him. Uh, who, who, who is still currently not on NFL rosters, uh, has not been, has not had the opportunity afforded to him to be, to come in uh, and be signed by, by any team, has not gotten a one-on-one -on -one individual workout with it, with any team. Um, and, and, led a team as a starting quarterback to a Super Bowl during his during his career and is still at an age that's younger than when than lots of quarterbacks who were successful in the, in the NFL. Colin Kaepernick played from 2011. His last game was in 2016. He had a 59 almost a 60% completion rate. Tim Tebow in his career as a quarterback Played only three seasons, attempted 361 passes, completed 173 of them for a completion percentage of 48%, uh, which is 11 percentage points lower than, uh, than Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, I don't know a lot about football, but I do know a lot about discrimination and racism. And, uh, you know, it's just shocking to me. Uh, you laid out those statistics. I, I wrote them down. Again, you don't have to be, you know, a, a avid football watcher to know that when you have two players, one white, one black, and you have a black player who is superior, uh, and that player's not been signed, and you have a white player whose statistics are, you know, far less, uh, has been out the league a lot longer, who's older, and all the things that you would typically think an NFL team would be looking at, you know, it just raises so many questions. When I was reading that article, Keith, one of the things, you know, they says, oh my God, uh, Colin would bring so much negative media attention to a team and he would overshadow, you know, the, the hot new player on the team and it would be a media circus. And that's why the teams are, you know, uh, keeping their distance from him. People were saying, oh, there's going to be a media circus. But what I did, you went and looked up stats and I went up, looked up, um, I went and looked up commercial information, right? So after Kaepernick did uh, the commercial with Nike in 2018, Nike sales went up 30%. And then months after that, um, he had a jersey, the all black Kaepernick jersey that uh, went on sale last year, sold out in a minute. So he is clearly good for business. So that argument doesn't hold any weight for me. And, you know, I'm not looking at it from a sports perspective. 
perspective, I'm looking at it from a business perspective and correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert here, but don't the owners care about selling tickets and selling jerseys and merchandise and all that stuff? I mean, isn't that what it's about at the end of the day? So it doesn't make sense to me that he wouldn't be a huge draw. It feels like the only thing is this blacklisting of him, this Muhammad Aliing of him, this keeping him out of the sport that he's trained for and you know and, and trained to compete in because he's being punished. So you're you're right to a point, right? Like NFL owners do care more about money and about dollars than they do anything else. They care who sells jerseys. They care about television licensing deals. They care about sponsors. They care about getting stated like that. All of that's right. But you got to remember who NFL owners are, right? These are all billionaire white guys, right? And what do we know about billionaire white guys by and large, by and large in this country? That having the status of being a billionaire white guy is all about privilege, 31 white guys, are looking at the, are looking at this guy who's using their platform not just as a vehicle to make money but as a vehicle to make the kind of social change and then to engage with the kind of movement that endangers their perception of the world and their and their grip on power but then they also use that, him in these social it. justice videos so they want to have it both ways they want to appeal to the group of people who support him and then they want to keep him out of the NFL it's very disingenuous well, yeah, of course it's disingenuous. Like, have, do, have you have you seen the NFL? I mean, like, I know I know that you don't you know engage with like sports media in, in the way that in the way that I have, right? But like, so NFL owners, it's all it's all disingenuous. This is a this is a league that puts three hundred pound men running at each other at full speed, crashing into each other, and talks about player safety. But still, but up until a few years ago, we're selling we're selling videos of the NFL's greatest hits. This was a league that doesn't that that lives and survives off of the labor and the abuse of players' bodies, but doesn't want to give full, you know, fully guaranteed contracts to the guys who play. This is a league that talks about players, you know, player safety, but wants to put guys on the field for a 17th game this year when we already know that the 16th, that the 16 games that they play leave guys with, you know, permanent injuries. Do you think Ka- uh, Kaepernick will ever play again? Do you think they'll let him back in? No, I don't think he'll ever play again. He'll never I don't play, think again. He'll ever play again. I don't think they'll ever, I don't know. I don't think he'll ever play, take another snap on an NFL football field. I would love it if he if he did, but I don't see the 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 owners relenting from their position. In terms of kind of sacrificing for the greater good, he had to sacrifice his career as a as a football player, um, and I respect that as a sacrifice. I don't diminish that, but he has now gone on to be something much much greater, and I think he's just getting started. Um, I think he's going to go on to be you know, one of the great great leaders of social justice um, in a very modern way. You know, he may not be organizing marches and preaching at marches in the way that leaders of the past have done, but um, he's making a big big difference. So. Well, yeah, he just put out his uh, his, yeah, his, his book. publishing imprint put out the put out their first book. Well, they announced um, um, that it's coming out, so it's going to be released in October. It's an anthology that he yeah, edited. Okay. Correct. So you know there 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 are lots of opportunities for him, and I and I think they're going to happen in some non traditional ways. Um, 
that just don't look like what activism that what we remember activism of, of past generations looking looking like. Um, but they're all going to work out to, to his benefit. But you got to give Colin so much credit. You know, he took a knee to address policing and police brutality and, you know, systemic racism in our criminal justice system. Uh, and it's ironic that he would find himself, you know, several years later in this position. So I'm glad to see folks like you, uh, you know, who work in the sports media business standing up for Colin, uh, civil rights lawyers, all of us have been standing up for him. You know, he, he set the standards and he set them really high and, and he caused a, a movement. He's not playing in the league, but boy, has he done something with his career that's so much bigger than football. So we owe that brother a, a lot of credit for what he's been able to do to mobilize you know, uh, people all over this country to think critically about some of these important issues. All right, uh, that's gonna be our last word on that. Ariva, thank you so much um, for joining us. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.